uh, we're going to have Titus come up and speak to us again about uh, evidence uh, for the birth of Jesus. So we're going to go about, probably it's going to be about 30 minutes, I think, right? Does that sound about right? Whatever he, whatever, he can give us whatever we need, which is true. He's going to go about 30 minutes, and then we're going to have a Q&A. So I want you guys to be thinking about questions you might have. Maybe you already have questions in your mind. Maybe it'll be answered during the next 30 minutes or so. Uh, but if, if, uh, if not, or if something comes up along the way, then uh, save those, and we will be doing a Q&A at the end. So uh, with that, uh, Titus, I... He's got a lot of degrees. He's written a couple of books. He's got a book almost done at this point. When's it going to come out? Next year. Next year. Okay. He's almost done writing it um, about biblical archaeology, uh, expert in the field, uh, works with Discovery Institute, uh, does some um, uh, teaching at, at various universities, churches around the country, um, done some, led some digs uh, in, uh, all around the, the Middle East, and just a, a wealth of wisdom. So happy to have my brother-in-law, Titus, back. All right. Thank you, Nathan. Good to be back here and see some familiar faces and meet some new people. Well, Christmas will be coming up eventually. I know Thanksgiving hasn't even arrived, so maybe that's against the rules for some people to talk about Christmas already. But Mike asked me to focus on the advent and the, the history and the archaeology connected to the coming and the birth of Jesus. So this morning we are going to look at some of the gospel accounts about the birth of Jesus and what we found through archaeology and through ancient manuscripts outside of the Bible that connects to that, that demonstrates the reliability of those accounts and also helps us to better understand the, the text with the ancient context and all these findings from buildings and objects and geography that help to illustrate that for us. But let's uh, begin first with prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we can gather here together to worship you, to fellowship, and to study your word, learn more about you, and specifically more about the coming of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you guide me as I teach and that you would help all of us to accurately understand your word and to remember it and to apply it into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Gospels speak of the birth of Jesus, but only two of the Gospels give us detailed accounts of this, Matthew and Luke. John also mentions the birth, but just in passing. However, John, of course, does mention the incarnation of Jesus. So I want us to keep in mind always that when we're talking about the birth of Jesus or the coming of Jesus, it's not just the, the physical birth of a human baby, but it's also the incarnation of God, the Son of God, into that human baby. And so when John talks about in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh. He's talking about the birth of Jesus. He's talking about the coming of Jesus, the word becoming flesh. So our main sources, though, are, of course, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And you can see here on the slide, 
that we have these specific passages. I've divided them up there. So Matthew 1, starting in verse 18, uh, after we get through the genealogies. And then Luke, starting in chapter uh, 1, verse 26, again, after some of the, the, the prequel of the birth of Jesus. And then chapter 2, 1 through 40, goes through all these details. And then we jump back into Matthew, chapter 2, 1 through 23, and this is when the Magi come in. If you have read these recently or you have a good memory and you, you remember lots of details from them, you will see that the, the accounts in Matthew and Luke don't match up exactly. And what I mean by that is I don't mean they contradict each other. I mean that they're not just repeating each other. They, they overlap and so they give us supplementary information. Uh, much like we see throughout all of the Gospels. It's not four versions of exactly the same words or exactly the same events that are being recorded. They all supplement each other. They all contain some unique information. They're all written to specific audiences and they emphasize certain things. So Matthew, primarily written to a Hebrew audience, we see in the birth narrative, who does he emphasize in terms of other people besides Jesus? Well, one of those people he emphasizes is Herod the Great. Who was Herod the Great? He was the king of Judea at the time. Whereas Luke, we look at Luke, he's written to, we might say, an educated Roman audience or sometimes uh, a Hellenistic audience is, is the phrase that's used. But who does he emphasize? He emphasizes these Roman political leaders like the emperor and like uh, Quirinius, who was a ruler in Syria. So we can see they've got a little bit different emphasis. They're, they're giving us some extra information in each of those, but they are telling this same story of the birth of Jesus. Now, as far as the manuscripts that we have, the actual texts of the Bible, the earliest ones we have, I wanted to put up there for you to see how early these manuscript copies actually are that we possess today. So for John, again, this is the incarnation, the word becomes flesh. This is actually the earliest fragment of any gospel text that we currently have. This is called P52 or Papyrus 52, and it may date to as early as 90 AD. So this is a copy of John's gospel or part of a copy of John's gospel. It's not the original one. So that coming from 90 AD is incredibly early. John, John didn't write too long before that. Then we have Matthew, uh, sometime between 100 and 200 AD is this copy. It actually is comprised of two different papyri because they didn't know when these were found that they were actually part of the same manuscript. But again, very, very early here, second century basically. And then Luke, also in the second century, papyrus 4, around 150 AD or so. That tells us we've got really early manuscript copies. They're reliable. They say the same thing as what you have in your English translation, just in Greek, the original language that those Gospels were written in. Now, before we jump into some of the archaeology here, I want to preclude this with the way in which the Gospel writers present their information or present present the view of their history that they give us. Uh, Luke especially. So at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he tells us his historiography. 
he says, starting in verse 1, Since many have undertaken to compile an account concerning the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning passed on to us, it seemed fitting to me also, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write down in orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth. So Luke tells us exactly what he is doing here when he's writing his gospel. He's saying he went to all these eyewitnesses, so people who were actually there, who saw Jesus, who saw these events in his life, knew Jesus, and he got information from them, and he recorded that, wrote down in his notes uh, some quotes, some recounting of events. And then we have, he put it in orderly sequence or chronological order. So it's not all chaotic and everywhere and confusing. He put it in the order that these things happen so we can understand it like a normal story. Like you're watching a movie or reading a book that goes through day by day or year by year. And then he says the reason there, so that you may know the exact truth. And he says that he investigated everything carefully. So he's presenting this at the beginning as something that was meticulously researched so that you would know exactly what happened, the truth of what happened in the life of Jesus, including the birth accounts. John says something similar near the end of his gospel in chapter 21, verses 24. He says, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So he does a short version, but he's essentially signing the document saying, I am testifying with my name here, with my identity, that this stuff actually happened, that it's true. So we can check to see if what they wrote is actually verified by archaeology, but they're telling us this, this is true, and they're, they're putting themselves out there as historians. Now, I want to start with a few questions for us to consider, the things that we're going to address as we go through this. First of all, in which cities did Joseph and Mary live prior to the birth of Jesus? Okay, a lot of you will know these questions already, but we're going to look at these, these places and these things. What is the significance of the name Jesus and the title Christ? In approximately which year was Jesus born? We might not be able to say with 100% certainty, but we can at least have a good idea. In what type of dwelling was Jesus born? Who was Quirinius, mentioned by Luke? Does the census make sense? A lot of people have a problem with this. A lot of historians have a problem with the census that Luke mentions. Where did Jesus live as a baby and a young child? Believe it or not, there are some discussions in certain areas of academia that contradict what we have in Scripture there. Who were the Magi? We, what, what can we say about them? Why did King Herod order the young children of Bethlehem to be executed? And, and is there anything from other historical accounts that connects to this? Why did Joseph want to avoid Archelaus? That comes in Matthew. And then the, what are the implications of fulfilled prophecy? Because if, they, if these things actually happened, well, we can go back to the Old Testament and see several places 
where details about the, the birth and early life of Jesus are prophesied. And that's a different, a different angle than the archaeology, but it's also something that gives us a historical attestation. All right, now I want to start with uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And we're going to look through some of these passages about the birth narrative and pick out a few details, and then we'll look at some of the archaeology connected to that. So in verse 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. What does the name Jesus mean? What was it in, in Hebrew or Aramaic? Uh, Yeshua is usually how it would be pronounced in Aramaic, but in Hebrew, this is actually a name similar to what we see uh, as, as Joshua, Yehoshua. What does that mean, though? It means Yahweh is salvation. So his very name is actually telling us that he is God, that he is the one true God, Yahweh, and that he is salvation. He has come to save through the incarnation brought about by his birth into the world. Next, we will go to Luke chapter 2. And Luke chapter 2 and 1 talks about this census. It says that it happens in the days of Caesar Augustus that a census was ordered for the entire Roman world. This is apographe in Greek. What is this thing? It's, we, could, we could call it a census, basically. It's some, some type of list. It's not exactly the same type of census that we have in the United States today, but it's very similar. So what were they doing? They were trying to count people in the Roman Empire. However, specifically, these censuses were directed towards citizens, usually, and then in some of the places, they would also get an accounting of non-citizens and see then how much tax revenue might they get. So they could use this for a lot of different things. Part of that, though, was the tax money. We jump ahead in Luke a little bit farther, and when they get to Bethlehem, it says that there is no room for them in the inn in Luke 2, verse 7. Uh, that's what most translations say, but this... If we were to translate this literally from the Greek, it would say there was no room for them in the guest room. Okay, it's, it's different from an inn. If you read the parable of the Good Samaritan where he goes to an inn, that is, that is a different situation here. We have a word specifically used for a guest room. So this is probably a family home. Then we go ahead to his birth, and we see that Jesus is called a, a baby, okay? So that makes sense. Why do I point this out? Because later on, we have a different word that's used for him when he's a little bit older, like when the Magi come, and they use this word to tell us that he is an infant or a child rather than a newborn baby. We have Magi then, and this is just directly moving from the Greek letters into English letters. It's not a translation. Because Magi were this class of people that were kind of like ancient scientists in a way, but they were very, very good with astronomy, but also astrology. 
they were supposed to be wise advisors and, and dream interpreters. We'll talk a little bit more about them. Uh, the star that we read about in Matthew. In Greek, this is aster, and it can have a lot of different meanings. So they didn't have all these different words for uh, planets, asteroids, stars, comets, supernovas, etc. So they have a very general word there, and this could actually be used for more than just something like that we, we would think of as a star or a planet. It also could mean uh, some body of light or even an angel in certain uh, situations. So we'll, we'll look into that too. And then finally, the house is there in that narrative about with the star and the magi. Uh, so it goes right over a house. And the house is different than where they are when he is born. And we're going we're gonna to see that because we're going to look at some of the archaeology and what we can glean, uh, not only from the text, but from the things that have been discovered in Bethlehem and in Nazareth. Uh, then let's look at a map before we get into some of the artifact finds. So this is, this is the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus. And you see the different colors there. It's color-coded so that you can distinguish between things like provinces ruled by the emperor and provinces ruled by the senate and uh, places that were client kingdoms. So Judea over there in the far east, that was a client kingdom. You see it's in light green. It was a client kingdom at the time that Jesus was born. And that means that it wasn't directly ruled by either the emperor or the Roman senate. It was ruled by a local king who answered to Rome. And in this case, it was Herod the Great. Now, later on in Jesus' life, that changed. In AD 6, it became an actual Roman province ruled by a governor or a prefect. But at this point in time, it's, it's Herod. So I bring that up because I want, I want everybody to understand just how far away Jesus is from the center of Rome. He's at the very edge of the empire, and it's not even a fully incorporated part of the empire at this point in time. And yet, what we see just a few decades later is that Christianity starts spreading everywhere throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And it came from this little nothing province uh, that was quite an annoyance for the Romans. And it completely changed world history. Our, our dates that we use, that everyone uses basically, 90 plus percent of the world uses the BCAD system for dates, you know, or they... They use the same system, but they use BCE and CE. And all these different historians acknowledge the importance of Jesus. I'm going to read a quote from, from H.G. Wells in the outline of history. So H.G. Wells was a, a historian about 100 years ago, and he was not a Christian. He was actually uh, an atheist, but he recognized the importance of Jesus so he says, Jesus was a penniless teacher who wandered about the dusty, sun-bit country of Judea, living upon casual gifts of food, yet he is always represented clean, combed, and sleek, in spotless raiment, erect, and with something motionless about him as though he was gliding through the air. This alone made him unreal and incredible to many people who cannot distinguish the core of the story from the ornamental and unwise additions of the unintelligently devout. 
Then he says, I am an historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history, but he does not dominate my heart. So even though he rejected Jesus as God and the Messiah, he recognized that Jesus was historically a real person and that he was the most important person in history. And that carries through today for almost all historians. Now let's get to Luke and Emperor Augustus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, he names this Emperor Augustus and says, In those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration or census when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, probably everyone has heard of Emperor Augustus, and we have no reason to doubt his existence. Here's a, one of the many statues of him. We know a lot about him. We know that he was the emperor of Rome from 27 BC until his death in 14 AD. And he is the person primarily responsible for bringing about what's called the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And in fact, it's very interesting because Paul talks about how Jesus came at just the right time. And if we look at the historical context of the birth of Jesus, well, Rome had this massive empire, and yet it was basically peaceful other than some border wars that they were fighting. And you could travel quickly and safely throughout the empire. You could use the same currency. You could speak the same language. And so it allowed for the very, very rapid spread of the gospel and the message of Christianity throughout much of the world. Well, Luke, uh, he mentions this so that we can start with some basic historical context and we know what the setting of this story is and that it's real. Then he goes and he says that this was the first census or registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, we'll get, that, get to that in just a minute, but who was the other major ruler at this time? It was Herod the Great. Now, Luke doesn't talk about Herod the Great here, but Matthew, of course, does. So if we go back to Matthew and the, the nativity narrative there, we see that Matthew talks about King Herod. Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, who was he? Herod the Great, again, was the client king of Judea. So he's the king. The Romans, though, they ultimately held power and he was accountable to them. He ruled from about 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. when he died. Uh, 37 is also a number that is thrown out there because that's when he actually gained control of Jerusalem. So he attacked the previous ruling dynasty of the Hasmoneans. If you've ever heard of them, uh, maybe you're familiar with the book of Maccabees, which talks about uh, that dynasty. He was an incredibly prolific builder. We have remains of Herod the Great all over, not just the area of Israel, but even beyond. Many of, what, many of the buildings that, that he had constructed, you can still go and see them today, and they had some pretty distinctive types of architecture. What's really interesting about Herod being king of Judea is that he himself was not from the tribe of Judah, or really from any tribe of Israel. Uh, his 
his ancestry was that on one side of the family, he was Nabataean. Okay, so uh, this is over to the east in what is today Jordan, uh, primarily. And then also Edomite, so to the south, the, the land of Edom, descendants of Esau. So his family is, is from the area, but they were not really part of Israel. He converted to Judaism and maybe, maybe believed it, maybe not. He, he had the temple reconstructed. He tried to make the people happy with things like that. But on the other hand, he also built temples for the Romans. So he wasn't a very faithful adherent of Judaism if he fully believed it. Well, Herod died in 4 BC. And we know about this because Josephus, who was a first century historian from Judea, who then became an official historian for the Romans, he talks a lot about Herod and he gives us some details of his death. So we're able to place that in March of 4 BC. And why is this important? Because it tells us that Jesus was born sometime before this. Now, that is Herod's sarcophagus, as far as we know, on the left there. It's smashed, you can see. The people hated him, and it was probably destroyed soon after his death. On the right, those are the remains of the mausoleum where he was buried at a place called Herodium, which is near Bethlehem, just south of Jerusalem. So uh, archaeologists have fairly recently recovered the burial place and sarcophagus of Herod, but you know, for a long time we knew when he died. Now back to Luke's narrative. So we've established the two major rulers, but there's another political figure that factors into this birth narrative, and that is Quirinius, and it's the census that took place. This is something that a lot of historians have had a problem with and criticized about Luke's writing. They claim that Luke made some mistake here if Jesus was born before the death of Herod, then the census that he talks about couldn't have happened then. So there's some, some confusion. Uh, they look at a later census, or actually a later tax assessment, that this, this same Quirinius is involved in in Judea in 6 AD when he goes there after a guy named Archelaus, one of the sons of Herod, is deposed, okay? It's a totally different situation. It's a local tax assessment that happens when Judea is transitioning to a Roman province. It is not a empire-wide census. Completely different thing. Now, we do have evidence of this empire-wide census and Quirinius's involvement in a census from Roman documents. On the right there, this is part of what's called uh, Res Gestae. So this is the biography of Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And in this, he talks about how he had ordered censuses of the whole Roman Empire in the years 28 BC, 8 BC, and 14 AD. And then he actually tells you how many citizens they counted in those. And I'll just tell you, roughly, it's between four and five million, but he, they do have the specific numbers in there. So 8 BC is the one that is relatively close to the death of Herod, before the death of Herod. We know it has to come before 4 BC. So what, what is a possible reconstruction of events? Sometime in 8 BC, Augustus orders, we need a new census of the whole Roman Empire. And so they send out that order throughout the empire. And they don't have 
email and internet, so it's not immediate. People have to get on horses and ships and take these letters to the different provinces and to the officials there, and then they have to distribute it. So it takes a while. How long did it take? I don't know, several months, a year, something like that. Then when it gets to those places, the military is in charge of administering the census. So a general and his officers basically are going to be the ones who are in charge in each province of actually going and doing the work of the census and collecting these little scraps of paper where people are writing their name and you know, what city they live in and their family and things like that. And how do I know that they wrote that stuff? Because we have recovered some of these receipts, if you want to call them, census papyri from Egypt. And they talk about all this. They put their name on there. They put who's in their house. They put the, what their profession is and so forth. So we know that the Romans were doing this. They were making people go back to their homes, just like we see how Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem and do this for the census. But what about Quirinius? Well, Quirinius, we know a lot about him from Roman records, actually. He was a very famous Roman politician. He was a general, a legate, they would call him. And this inscription on the left is from one of his officers. And it talks about how during the time of Augustus, he was part of a census team. And Quirinius, the legate, the, the general, was the one who was in charge of it in the area of Syria. Now, Syria province was an actual Roman province. Uh, I mean, it was a, a proper province, whereas Judea, remember, at this time was a client state. So Judea was under the jurisdiction of Syria province in these things. So he was also the one who would have been over Judea. So we have some really interesting archaeological evidence of this empire-wide census of it happening over in the area of Syria and Judea and that Quirinius is the one who is in charge of it in that particular area. And this tells us basically that the birth of Jesus was between 8 and 4 BC and, and we might say uh, roughly around 7 BC. Well, according to the narratives in Matthew and Luke, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And today, if you go there, there's still this church built over the spot, revered as the location of the birth. It's called the Church of the Nativity. Uh, it's, it's actually the, the longest continuously used church in the Holy Land. It has basically been used since the 4th century when it was constructed. A lot of people have questions about these old churches. We, we would call them Byzantine churches because... The Byzantines are the ones who had them constructed. That is, uh, Roman, Romans in the Christian period. So 4th century to 6th century is usually considered uh, the Byzantine period in this region. It goes later in, in other parts of the world. But uh, that's because Christianity was legalized in 313 AD with the Edict of Milan by Constantine. So then... Christians could actually build churches, and Constantine was one that paid for and commissioned a lot of the churches. Before that, everyone met in houses. And Constantine especially wanted churches to be constructed where significant events happened in the Bible, and particularly the life of Jesus. And so many churches were built at the locations where events in the life of Jesus happened, such as the nativity in Bethlehem. 
we go and we look at that church, we can see remains from the original fourth century church. And if you go to the back of it, you go down some stairs and there's a cave. So the earliest information that we have about the location besides in the gospels that it was in Bethlehem and there was a manger is that he was born in a cave in Bethlehem. So we have some second century writings that talk about that. And the Christians, they remembered this, this location, at least the general location, because of how important it was. This is the incarnation, all right? The resurrection, very important. The crucifixion, very important. The incarnation, also very important. And so these places were remembered by the Christians who were living there for centuries and centuries. In these small towns, they didn't forget when something monumental happened down the street from them. So they were able to pass this on to their children and grandchildren. Now, I can't say with 100% certainty that that very cave is the one where Jesus was born, but it's quite plausible. We're told that Jesus was wrapped in cloths and placed in a manger. Now, what was this? It's an animal feeding trough. And here's a picture of one. These were carved out of stone. They were not made out of wood, as you might see in a lot of artistic depictions. There's not a lot of wood in the area, but there is limestone everywhere, and it's a lot better at retaining liquids. And it lasts a whole lot longer. So many, many of these mangers are still around today that were in use in the time of Jesus. This is actually one from Nazareth, but, uh, or on my slide it is. Yours is from Megiddo. But this is what they basically look like. So that's another clue, actually, that, that helps us to understand that he would have been born in a cave, not inside a house. It's because they used these caves that were attached to the houses to put the animals in at night so they could be kept safe. That's why there was an animal feeding trough there. Some people criticize the Gospels and say that there's no evidence for Jesus outside of the New Testament and he was just a, a mythical figure. And yet, we see many, many quotations from first and second century writers that talk about different aspects of the life of Jesus, including his birth. So one that I picked out is from Celsus, who was an opponent of Christianity in the second century AD, and he knows a lot of details about the story. Uh, he says that uh, Jesus invented his birth from a virgin, okay? So he knows about the story of the virgin birth. He doesn't believe it, but he knows it. He says he was born in a certain Judean village, all right? That's also important. Uh, not just that it's a, a village in Judea, but Nazareth was in Galilee. So he knows that it's, it's somewhere like Bethlehem. It's, he knows that Jesus wasn't born in Nazareth, even though Jesus lived there later. And he knows that Jesus is father, Joseph, he doesn't use that name, but was a carpenter, all right? So he knows a lot of these different details. In fact, if we went and read later in this passage, he also knows that Jesus went to Egypt when he was a young child. So many, many things are corroborated by these early writers, even though they didn't believe in Jesus as God and Messiah. We get uh, next to Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, and this is when the Magi story comes in. So the Magi aren't mentioned in any of the other Gospels, just in Matthew. 
Who were these guys? Well, we talked about this a little bit earlier. They're advisors, usually advisors, the kings. In fact, if you go back to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had magi in his court who were advisors to him, dream interpreters, astronomers. So they would look at the stars, they would map the stars, and they would also look at the stars and, and look for symbology or meaning in those. Yes, getting into astrology even. Uh, I don't know exactly what the theological beliefs of the Magi who visited Jesus were. I don't know if they were into pagan astrology or not, but they were definitely uh, looking to the stars and would have known about different constellations. Where did they come from? We can't say for certain, but it would have been Babylon or Persia. That's where the Magi generally were living. Uh, they actually originated in Persia, and there's a, there's a very interesting old manuscript called the Revelation of the Magi. It's, it's thought to have been written in the second century. And it, it tells us that there were at least 12 Magi. Like, remember, the Bible doesn't say there were three Magi, just three gifts. And they were from a place called Shear, which there are a lot of places with that name component in Persia or, or Iran today. And that they were waiting for this old prophecy from centuries ago, which many people think goes back to Numbers 24, 17. It's in the context of the Balaam story about this star coming, all right? But then they're guided to Jesus by this star. So this is a miraculous event. You read through the, the passage here, and the star, it's appearing and it's reappearing, right? It's not like a, a normal star that's just always up there every night. And then we get some, some even more odd behavior from this star because it says that after they talk to Herod and they go down, they start going towards Bethlehem, the star reappears then. And then it guides them. And where does it guide them? It says it takes them directly to the house where Jesus was. It sits right over the house. That's not possible for a star. So this is talking about either an angel or some kind of divine light, like when God used this earlier in the Old Testament, like the, the light that guided the Israelites through the wilderness at night. <clears throat> so this is something very, very miraculous, leads them to a specific house, and they visit Jesus there, which may have been up to two years after his birth. Remember, before we talked about the difference between the word baby and the word infant, okay? So a little bit of time has passed here. Uh, this next slide shows the earliest depiction of the Magi from a sarcophagus in Rome. So you can kind of see what people thought they looked like at that point. Uh, they've got this weird looking hat. Sometimes it's called the Parthian cap. And again, this is because it's coming from this area of uh, basically Persia today. There's a little star it's shown. It shows Jesus on Mary's lap and Joseph behind, and they're bringing the three gifts. And then finally, uh, we'll get to the massacre of the innocents that's happening right about this time. So if you're familiar with the Matthew story, again, Matthew's the only one who talks about this. Herod decides he wants to kill Jesus kill this coming king because he is paranoid. He's afraid that someone's going to take his power. And this is very, very typical of the behavior that we see about Herod in other historical sources. 
In fact, during this, this time period, near the end of his life, 7 to 4 BC, is when he executed some of his own sons even because he was paranoid about them taking the throne from him. He had many people assassinated throughout his reign, but he became especially crazy near the end. Uh, some archaeologists, historians, and psychologists got together for a collaborative study, and they were trying to diagnose what, what Herod might have had, some kind of paranoia. And, and also he had some physical ailments that may have added to this. But it's perfectly consistent with the picture and the history that we have about Herod, especially at that time. But there are a couple of other ancient texts that refer to this. So the Assumption of Moses seems to be from the first century. And it, it talks about uh, an insolent king will succeed the Hasmoneans. He will slay all the old and the young. And it compares him, like Herod, to the Pharaoh who killed the male babies in Egypt prior to the Exodus. All right. So it's not explicitly clear, but it is implying that Herod will kill male babies. And then we have a slightly later source in Saturnalia from about 400 AD, and he's pulling from earlier information. But he talks about how Herod had ordered all the boys in Syria, again, this includes Judea area, under the age of two years to be put to death and that the king's son was among those killed. He said, I would rather be Herod's so or pig than Herod's son. Because if Herod was following the Mosaic law, he wouldn't kill and eat pigs. So there's, there's knowledge of this event. And again, it's perfectly consistent with what we know about Herod. All right, uh, let's skip ahead a couple more to Herod Archelaus. Now this is after, uh, keep going. There we go. This is after the return from Egypt. So they go to Egypt. We don't know exactly where they were in Egypt. There's some, some traditional locations, but there's really nothing solid. But Matthew tells us, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. So this is a coin, one of the coins that Herod Archelaus issued. He was one of the sons of Herod who became a ruler of his kingdom after the death of Herod in 4 B.C. He ruled from 4 BC to 6 AD, but he was such a violent and horrible ruler that the Romans actually expelled him and exiled him to Gaul. And that's why the place became a Roman province, governed by a Roman prefect. Uh, one of the things Josephus talks about is that he had executed about 3,000 Pharisees during Passover at one time. So you can understand why Joseph would not want to go to Judea where Archelaus was in power because he seemed every bit as crazy, actually maybe even worse than his father Herod. So then they go back to Galilee instead to Nazareth and this is where Jesus grows up. And it's ruled by a different Herod, Herod Antipas, who was much more peaceful and had a longer reign, didn't really cause any problems uh, for Jesus, although Jesus avoided him for most of his life. So we could also look at prophecy. There's many different prophecies in the Old Testament that we can see historically were fulfilled. We can verify that these things happened. 
Uh, they are written in the Gospels, but we can also look through the, the archaeology and other outside historical sources to confirm this divine aspect of the text. And we'll just end with this reference in Peter, 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Peter, who of course was there and saw the ministry of Jesus, he says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so we can see that not only are these writings about the birth of Jesus verified in the historical and archaeological record, but we even have prophecies connected to the birth of Jesus coming from the Old Testament that are verified by the writings of the New Testament and by outside archaeological and historical sources telling us this is a true story and it is a divine story. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for giving us uh, your word in these gospels that tell us all about the incarnation of Jesus, the birth, the coming of the Messiah, so that we might know more about you, we might know this message of salvation and believe and be granted the gift of eternal life. We thank you for all of the evidence that you have left behind and that more and more continues to be discovered that just demonstrates the truth of your word. We pray that we can recall some of this information uh, to answer the questions that people have about why should they trust the gospels? Why should they believe in Jesus Christ as their savior? In your son's name, amen. Sure. Uh, can you go back to the prophecy slide? All right. Well, thank you, Titus. So we're going to do a little Q&A here. Um, so I guess, first of all, you're telling me that the star on my Christmas tree isn't historically accurate? Wasn't an actual star? It wasn't uh, <laughs> a star like the sun. And, it was a bright light and, and like a star. Okay, all right. And the three magi peeking in on the baby Jesus in the wooden structure with the shepherds all there, probably not historically accurate. Yeah, yeah not, not, probably not, not either. All right, but I can leave it up anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so um, hopefully all of you have come up with a few questions. Um, I've come up with just a few in case, or maybe just to get us started here. So I'll, I'll, I'll kick us off. Um, so one of the first things you mentioned or talked about was, was the manuscripts, the early manuscripts of uh, some of the Gospels. So um, how, do we, how can we trust that those manuscripts from, you know, second century, let's say, um, 
the copies of those manuscripts are historically uh, the same as what the original letters that were written uh, by the gospel writers. Mm -hmm. So every ancient, every ancient manuscript, every ancient document that we have other than say original stone inscriptions is a copy or a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, right? Now, because the New Testament has so many copies of its various books, they, they have this wide distribution. Uh, think about it like this. Paul writes a letter to the Colossians and he sends it to Colossae. And they're supposed to read it and they're supposed to circulate it then with other people. So they read it and they, they copy it down and they give it to somebody else in a different city and they copy it and they pass it on, right? So you have all these independent groups, so to speak, making copies of the same original. Eventually that original falls apart, rots away, gets burned up, thrown in the trash, stolen, whatever. But you've got all these different copies, right? So we can look at the different copies and we can see do they agree with each other or they, they have all these different versions of the letter of Colossians or the gospel of Matthew? And what we see is that they all agree with each other. There are, there are instances where you have a word spelled differently, some, other, some kind of grammatical discrepancy or error. Sometimes there's a, even like a verse that's left off the end of something. But because we have so many copies, we can reconstruct the original. We can, we can find the odd man out sort of thing. You know, that, the one, that one manuscript that has this problem here, or this manuscript that has this problem over there. And we can see, okay, all the other ones are saying this, so they, they made a copying error here. So that's, that's the main reason why we can trust it. And so we have all these copies spanning, you know, what we might call ancient manuscripts, the second century to the 10th century. All right. And there are thousands of them of the New Testament. I got one more, then you guys can jump in. So um, I know in your book, which I read, uh, there's some discussion about December 25th. We celebrate Christmas on December 25th. Was that the day Jesus was born or not? It's, you know, just an open question. A lot of people ask, so I thought I'd throw it out there. Uh, I can't say with 100% certainty, again, some of these things are probability, but yes, most likely, why? Now, December 25th was not instituted as a special holiday after the time when Christianity was legalized or made the official religion of the Roman Empire. It, we can go back even to the second century AD and we see Christians, some of the early church fathers, talking about the conception of Jesus, March 25th or late March, and the birth of Jesus, December 25th or late December, multiple sources. It, it actually is kind of the opposite of, reality is kind of the opposite of what is often spread around in the internet and so forth. Rather than the Christians taking a pagan holiday and then putting you know, Christ's birth stamp on it, the pagans took the probable date for Christ's birth and then put the celebration of Sol Invictus on it. So all the, the Christian Jesus' birth in December 25th area-ish vastly predates anything having to do with the Sol Invictus holiday. Sol, S-O-L, 
Sol, S-O-L, the sun. Invictus, I-N-V-I-C-T-U-S. Uh, Josephus on Jesus. So Josephus mentions Jesus twice in his writing. In one place, it's just a passing reference to Jesus being the brother of James and that James was martyred. But in the other passage, he talks about Jesus and he says that Jesus was a wise man, that he had many disciples from different nations, uh, that he performed you might use the, the word miraculous, but it's not exactly the, the word he uses, but paradoxical and, and incredible works. And that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate and that people reported that he was alive three days after his death. So, so he doesn't say that he believes in the resurrection, but he does say that people reported it. So yeah, he mentions the trial and, and crucifixion of Jesus. So basically all archaeologists and historians that work in this time period and region acknowledge that Jesus was an historical person uh, and that in varying degrees the Gospels have historical information. So there's, in academia there's not really a dispute about that. It's just it's some of the details, okay, like I talked about the census. As far as discoveries in Israel that connect more to Christianity than to Judaism or, or just general history of Israel. It really depends on what's found and how it's found. You know, if it's, if it's a fourth century church or something, it, there, that's fine. The, the, the one place where I did see pushback was on what's called the James Ossuary. So this is probably the the earliest inscription, or at least the first one that's been found, that, that mentions Jesus in an inscription from the first century. And when this was kind of presented to the world, it, a lot of people were incredibly interested in it. But then a, a group from the Israel Antiquities Authority, they made claims that it was a forgery. And so it, it ended up being part of this 10-year-long forgery trial and lots and lots of experts weighed in and analyzed it. And, and in the end, the guy was not convicted of forgery. And really, it showed that the inscription was authentic. And from the first century, and this, this ossuary or bone box was from Jerusalem. And, you know, in all probability, based on statistics, it was talking about James and Jesus and Joseph. Uh, so... I think part of that is pushed back against Christianity, but part of it's also pushed back against uh, artifacts that are not discovered in sanctioned archaeological excavations. So there's, it's, it just depends on who you encounter in, in academia. Uh, I would if I was digging in Israel proper, but I'm not right now. So, yeah, I, I've dug in Palestine and Armenia and also the U.S. So the main one talks about him as a Nazarene, 
perhaps. If we, look, if we look back at the Hebrew, it looks like that word. So that would be the one that we have that, that would place him in Nazareth, right? But Micah tells us that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So we have a very obvious prophecy about the location of the birth, and we have what seems like a reference to him being associated with Nazareth in one other passage. Uh, can you, yeah, can you bring up the slide? Uh, it's the prophecy one. It's near the end there. Oops. Yeah. Yeah, Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. So this, this is definitely a debated one, but, but we do have the word in there. So sometimes it's, it's translated or interpreted differently. It, it's the word Nazar. So in Hebrew, that's what, that's what gets uh, used. Hang on. So verse 1 particularly, okay? So it's probably translated, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, okay? So if you go back and you look at the word branch there, that is, has the same letters as, as a Nazarene. So that's where that idea comes from. For the Gospels? So when they, were, when they were around Jesus and say Peter or Matthew are there and they're taking notes, they're, they weren't composing the Gospel at the time that they were with Jesus. They're taking notes. They probably were writing on these wax tablets. So that was what was used in the first century to, to write things down like that. Uh, they might have used parchment also. Probably didn't use papyrus. Uh, it wasn't as commonly used or, or as easy to acquire in Judea as like in Egypt. So yeah, they're writing on these tablets or they're writing on uh, animal skin. Uh, but then when they actually composed the Gospels, those were probably written on, on parchment, on this animal skin as so many scrolls at that time were. And then as the copies got made, you've got a lot on the animal skin, but you also have many on papyrus because they were copied in Egypt. It was not, it was not an uncommon name, no. A lot of people had that name. Yeah, it, it depends on which ones you're talking about. Uh, yeah, the manuscripts are scattered all over the place for sure. Um, you know, there are examples of coins in many places. A lot of these coins are, of course, going to be in places like the Israel Museum or the Eretz Israel Museum in Tel Aviv has quite a big collection of coins. 
that Herod's sarcophagus is in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem too. I showed you a couple of things that were in Rome. So the Vatican Museum has a few things. Um, those, the Quirinius inscription, that one is in Venice. And there's a, there's a few different copies of Augustus's biography. So, yeah. No, that, that was just a special exhibition. So it's, it's owned by a guy in Israel, and it's, it's in his private collection still. He's been trying to do some kind of exhibit or loan an exhibit to another museum, but it, nothing has happened really so far, because he, he's got a bunch of other artifacts too. Yes? Uh, yes, sort of. So the ones that I participated in, have been from the Old Testament period. So the, the kingdom of Ararat, or what's called Urartu, that's mentioned in the books of Kings and Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, that's the kingdom where the sons of Sennacherib fled to after they assassinated their father. And of course, it's also the region where Mount Ararat is from. So, you know, the traditional landing place of, of Noah's Ark. But yeah, there's, there's early Christian stuff there, but it's, most of it, it's not, it's not as early as what you're going to see in, in Israel or Rome or Greece. Yes? So it depends on what kind of wood they were using. A lot of the building material, really high quality building material, would be imported from Lebanon, for example. And we, you know, we see this a lot, talked about a lot in the Old Testament for big building projects. For, for just smaller things, they could use olive wood. And there's a lot, there were a lot of olive trees there. And we're not sure what the extent of the forests were in, in ancient times, but it, it seems like there, was, there were more trees than there were, say, in the 1930s when the place looked pretty barren. Uh, but there wasn't so much wood that you would just use it for everything and the fact that it just doesn't last as long. Okay, wood decomposes over time. And there's limestone everywhere, everywhere in the ground. And so they can just go quarry it out and they have this really solid structure, whatever they, whatever they want. Like if it's a ritual bowl for washing or if it's a manger, for their animals or if it's building stones for their house. It was used for a lot of different things. So wood, wood was used, but uh, stone was very, very common for many items. Yeah, yeah the, well, the really big ones were probably quarried right there in place because it's, it's on a huge stone mountain. Yeah, and some of them are actually even connected. You can see that they're connected to the bedrock. Others, maybe they moved a little bit, but um, yeah, there's there have been studies that talk about though some some machinery and ideas. They had pulleys and all that kind of thing then too, and they knew how to use levers. I mean, this is this is the Roman period we're talking about when construction techniques like that were probably the highest than the most complex that they have ever been until the Industrial Revolution. 
So they were good at building things, but yeah, there's some pretty massive stones there. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd have to look for the exact title. There's, there's one that I'm thinking of that I have read, but let me get back to you and, and make sure I give you the right title and author. Yeah. Uh, the Quirinius inscription was about an officer during the time of Augustus that was employed with the, the general or the legate Quirinius in administering a census in the area of Syria. Uh, in the 1700s, I think, in Beirut, which was a part of Syria province at that time. It was a really, really old discovery. So that's, that's why I ended up in Venice rather than staying in Lebanon. They were traveling, so they probably had a caravan with camels and servants and all their stuff packed onto the camels, maybe donkeys too. And they were coming from the east and going towards where the star was directing them to, to meet Jesus. So they were living like nomads, basically. At that time, they, they would have had a whole elaborate tent set up for them to live, to kind of camp until they move to the next point. I would say that most likely that star either would have been an angel or it would have been just a divine light. Yeah, be, because you couldn't, you couldn't find a specific house with a normal star. And it was, it was moving around and it was going off and on. And uh, that, that revelation of the Magi manuscript I mentioned from the second century, that also talks about the star being like this angelic type of light. And it's, it's, that word is also used in ancient Greek literature in certain contexts as being a, a guiding angel with light, like to light, uh, to guide ships through a storm and things like that. Yes? I think that it probably landed on what we call Mount Ararat today because it's the tallest mountain in that region. So Genesis actually says the mountains of Ararat, so it's a range, and you have this, this mountain range there, the one we call Mount Ararat's the, the highest. That would make sense. That's the one that's peaking up above the waters. And there, there are a lot of ancient traditions that go back to that. But again, there's just no, there's no physical evidence of the ark itself that's ever been found. There's a, there's a piece of petrified wood, a big chunk of it, that's in a, a museum in Armenia that uh, a priest in the 4th century, or sorry, a monk in the 4th century, said that he retrieved from near the top of Mount Ararat. Now, maybe he got it from the top of Mount Ararat. I actually, I don't even really doubt that. But there's no way for us to say that it's from Noah's Ark. It, you know, it's just a piece of petrified wood. We don't know, you know, what it's from. But we do have ancient cuneiform tablets from Mesopotamia that have the earliest records of the flood story. And they talk about a guy in a boat who had landed on top of this mountain and 
So the general story is corroborated by other ancient sources. It's just, again, we don't have the actual boat. Will we ever find it? I don't know. I would say probably not because of how wood decomposes over time. And, you know, even if it's up there on top of that mountain, it would be buried under so much ice and snow. You would have to know exactly where to look and go through a lot of very difficult digging and coring to even get down to it. So Joseph kind of disappears from the record during the life of Jesus. And I mean, our best guess is that he died sometime, maybe in, in early adulthood of Jesus's life. We don't know for sure, but he's just, he's not around. He's never mentioned anywhere. Uh, as far as Mary, now the gospels tell us that she's still there, right? Because she was at the, the crucifixion. And then we have uh, other early Christian sources that actually talk about her living with John. So John was told to take care of Mary, right? And there's a, I don't know if I want to call it a legend, but there's some early writings that talk about Mary living in Ephesus uh, later in the first century. So exactly how long she was alive, we don't know. John probably moved to Ephesus in 60 AD ish somewhere around there so she's probably living you know 20 30 or so years after the crucifixion and resurrection but this it's it's speculation that's just it's our best guess yeah yeah that's it seems to be the case Yeah, so John was the last surviving of the original apostles. And he had a lot of influence, obviously, because of that later on. So he's living in Ephesus. And the, the emperor at the time, Domitian, actually built or had a temple to himself built for people to worship him as a god. And everyone was supposed to participate in what, what we call the imperial cult. So this is like the religion of the emperor. You're supposed to take a sacrifice to the emperor's temple or for the altar for the emperor. And John, of course, rejected that and told the Christians, no, you don't do this. And he has all this influence. So they decide we've, we've got to stop this guy or get rid of him. They took him to Rome and that's where they tried to kill him or at least torture him with the boiling oil and he didn't die so they exiled him to Patmos which other people got exiled to that island group also it was it was high profile political exiles not just John so it was something that the Romans did but when the next emperor came into power Nerva he pardoned all those people and so John was able to go back to Ephesus and so you know he brings re the writing of Revelation with him there and then he died soon after that. And we're not completely sure about the conditions of his death. Um, some think he just died of natural causes. But we do have some early sources that also say that he was stoned by some hostile Jews in Ephesus. So anyway, he lived a lot longer than the other apostles. Yeah, well, it is, but it's, it's, not, it's not so early that we can say, you know, this is exactly what happened. 